Welcome back to the Better, Faster, and Happier podcast. As usual, my name is Nancy and I'm your host. This is a podcast where we talk about organizational change. What is it about? And we get straight to the point. But we also do this with guests who are experts in this field and probably can let us know a thing or two. So on today's episode, we've got Frank and Shar from Plural Future Labs, and I'm super excited to have them here. Frank and Shar, what is it that Plural Future Labs do? We at Plural Futures Lab are organizational designers, and that, of course, raises the question, what is organizational design? And what that means from our perspective is integrating two disciplines that have, that have existed for a while. So on the one hand, you have process improvement, and that is something that people usually talk about, Lean and Six Sigma, using those tools to improve the way that, that process flows happen in organizations. And it's very kind of geeky and analytical and spreadsheets and flowcharts. And then on the other hand, you have a new movement called employee experience design. This is sort of like the, the new wave of HR and it is more empathy based and it's looking quite closely at, at what makes employees um, happy and satisfied in the job. And what we're saying is that that organizational design needs to happen and, and can happen by using those two disciplines simultaneously by understanding how the way that work gets done in an organization affects and is a part of that employee experience and also giving employees the rights, enabling them to design their own ways of working. So ultimately, organizational design is about, about designing better ways of working, but you need to look at both the hard analytics and, uh, and flowcharts and stuff and the, the soft stuff as well in order to do that effectively. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I never knew those two things were actually, you could merge those two things together. Because I guess when I've heard of organizational design, I've tend to look or I've been introduced to that topic through spreadsheets and flowcharts, as, as you've said. So it's great that you guys are taking a very interesting view and applying a bit of empathy into that. So from your unique perspective as organizational designers, what comes to mind when I say better, faster and happier organizations? Yeah. So first is, well, that sounds really good. And then you know, digging into the words, the one that really resonates with us is happier. So our slogan, if you look at our website, our, our main slogan is uh, healthy systems for happy workplaces. And that's really where we see the need and the, the potential for growth within organizations in our society is being able to understand the, the potential for happiness in an, an organizational environment and then enable people to actually achieve that. Mm-hmm. It also sounds good, but that word I think is a bit fraught because some people in some contexts are going to enjoy faster and benefit from it and some people aren't. And it depends on you know working styles, the task at hand. We, we encounter that in our work, people saying that they really just need a way to make this process more efficient. And when it, when, it, when it gets bogged down, they're unhappy. And other people saying they need more time and more space to dig into <clears throat> issues. So we really think about more, rather than faster, the quality that we aim for is like um, responsive, being highly responsive to the particular needs of a system or a situation. And then happier. I mean, that's happiness, oddly enough, is a value that is not fully embraced in our Western society. If you tell people you're about mm. promoting happiness, you can get written off as being impractical. And we firmly believe that that's, that's not impractical, that actually you need to be happy in order to be maximally 
uh, efficient and productive. So that's the core word for us. The words better, happier, or better, faster, and happier are subjective. When we say better, better for whom? Who are the stakeholders that get to decide what better means? Who are the stakeholders that get to decide what faster means? And who gets to decide what happier is? And so Frank and I, the bulk of our work is based on involving the employees because at the end of the day, we focus on the employee experience. And so an ideal environment for us would be one where the people who are involved in it have the autonomy to design what better, faster, and happier means for them. Because you can never have one workplace where everyone can be expected to behave or react the same way because we're all different human beings. So how do we provide space, create a space for the employees to get to decide and choose whether they want to work faster or they want to take their time and be slower, if, you know, what better means for each individual is, is really subjective. So how do we create an environment where people get to choose and customize that for themselves? Mm, that's really interesting. And, and what you just said, Char, actually creates a really interesting follow-up question in my mind. It's quite linked to what you just said, Frank. I mean, your question was, who defines what is better and what is faster? And I think quite often the people who are essentially the end users or your customers, and your customers could be the employees themselves, if you look at it from a HR perspective. If they're not in the room helping you define what is better and what is faster, you're always going to be working based on assumptions. And I think what then starts to happen is that you start to create unnecessary stuff just for the sake of it. And I guess when I say that another thing that also comes to my mind is the idea of efficiency versus effectiveness. Do you have any opinions on that? First thing that comes to mind is, you know, what are the dictionary definitions? And then, and then how do people re- respond to those in our society? Yeah. In terms of word association with efficiency, that brings to mind for me machines and, and gears and whatnot. And effectiveness has a more human feel to it. And that mm-hmm. in itself, if other people have that same association, is a reason to lean more towards effectiveness. And certainly we find people in this organizational design world talking about organizational effectiveness. That's another word that gets used for it. Yeah, at a high level, effectiveness feels like more of a holistic term. Yeah, and I would say it really depends on the environment, again, because there's no reason why you can't be effective and efficient at the same time. And efficient is, when we look at it from a human perspective, efficient is always looked at as sort of inhumane, but there is a way to blend in the human aspect to being efficient and and having it not feel so like machine-like, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, that's what it feels like. That's what it sounds like when companies say productivity, efficiency. It's all very fast as you can get this done or what's as soon as you can deliver this as opposed to when we say effective and efficient. There is potential to blend the two together. And I think that's where Frank and I, our expertise is to come in and help organizations achieve that blend between the two. Yeah, I think with efficiency, there's uh, a danger that you have this sort of top-down perspective, or these are the metrics that we're trying to achieve, and let's go all out and and get there as fast as possible. And we can say that we're efficient just based on the numbers, whereas the word effectiveness in order to decide whether something's effective or not, you have to have answered the question of what, what are we trying to achieve? What's the desired outcome? Because <laughs> only then can you know if it's effective. So yeah, I guess kind of feeling like yeah. effective is, is the more holistic of the two words there. Great. These are all really awesome insights. And I agree. I completely agree. I think there's a right balance you're trying to find, but those two things can coexist. 
I think, unfortunately, what ha- tends to happen is that a lot of companies tend to focus on one part, which is efficiency. Mm-hmm. And effectiveness, I assume, right now would force the conversations of companies focusing on the most valuable thing. So if you look at it from an employee experience, I'm assuming this right now, that if you're focusing on the most effective thing, you're looking at the most valuable thing. But again, I'm really curious because it sounds like you guys get some awesome opportunities of working with different companies. Do you have any recent success stories in the mission of making organizations better, faster, and happier? Yeah, we've got a couple to share. So one is a a client of ours. It's a, a large tech company located here in the Bay Area. And they're really lucky that they've already got an awesome, fun culture and they're, they're performing really well as an organization and they're just looking for ways to be even a little bit better to make life even a little bit happier for their employees. And um, they have brought us in to do some workshops with individual teams using a framework called StrengthsFinder. And so this is a, um, you might be familiar with it. It's a, an assessment that people can take and learn um, which of 34 strengths are their most most dominant strengths that are kind of inherent in them. And what usually happens, this is, this is a pretty popular thing in regions these days anyway, all the individuals will take the test and then they'll kind of forward their results around to each other and, and then they'll move on and, and nothing, it was just sort of like a quiz that they did and nothing really happened. What we've done is designed a workshop, including a variety of activities. There's a game um, that we've made along with some writing exercises and some visual exercises that get people immersed in really what do those strengths mean and what are their similarities and their differences based on those strengths and then experiment ways to work better together and communicate better as a team within the language of those strengths. And we've been really excited to see the way that people respond to that workshop when we deliver it, the smiles on their faces, the revelations that they have about um, each other and themselves. And then we hear they're using that language to then communicate better about their work going forward. So that, that feels really good to us that we're able to make an impact and give people a tool that they can use to work better together. That's really interesting. I've personally also done the Strength Finder test, and I guess we could have definitely used your help <laughs> because... You hit the nail on the hammer in a sense where we go and we did the test and it was great. A bit of insight about yourself. It can go on the trophy list of personal tests that you sit every year from the Meyer Briggs to just any other personality insight. But turning that into a game where you actively use the information to learn more about each other and and run experiments, that's really awesome. What type of experiments did you guys run actually? What we did is um, create a situational game. Um, we call it Pudding Ink. <laughs> and the setting is um, we, we're telling the players that they are people working at a hot new startup that does everything pudding. So pudding games, pudding apps, they do pudding drops, they innovate new pudding flavors. And we tell yeah. people that they're going to encounter a, a series of challenges within this company. And these challenges are things mm-hmm. that they're set in the context of this fictional kind of funny company, but they're things like, oh, a team is is understaffed and they're losing people and there's some unhappiness and we got to figure out what's going on. Or um, there's a problem in the production line. There's a conflict between two teams about you know, who's going to get the production resources. So challenges that are diverse enough that, that anyone working in any kind of context can relate to them. And then every we've dealt out to the players cards that represent their top five strengths and put them in teams. And then they Mm -hmm. have to come up with a pitch. Each team has to come up with a pitch for why 
they are well positioned to address that challenge using the strengths that they have. So it, it forces people to, oh, to wow. imagine how their unique strengths could apply in this fictional situation. And of course, there's no right answer there. But part of the dynamic of the mm-hmm. game is that they have to be in conversation within their teams and across teams and start to understand that, that these strengths are powerful and unique and diverse and that they, they take some kind of grappling with in, in situational context to figure out what they really feel like and what they can do. You know what I love about that game that you've just described is that it utilizes the power of storytelling. Mm-hmm. We don't do that enough. It simply also just allows people to put their strengths into context that they usually haven't done in the yeah. past or in the present time. So I can understand when you have those aha moments of, oh, I've got this strength and oh, I did not realize I could utilize it in these different uh, scenarios and cases. So I think that's really exciting. And I love, absolutely love, big fan of this game. Maybe you guys can come to London and try it out over here. because That would be uh, something yeah, to experience. That would be awesome. So, something that's also on my mind when it comes to organizational design. I personally think that we don't do enough of sharing stories about our failures. And I think this came off at the back of a conversation when I was speaking to an engineer who was getting a bit upset about the Spotify model because he was essentially his story was, Everyone talks about the Spotify squad model because it's great. It fixed the problems that Spotify was experiencing. and But the messaging that it gave to the world was that this is mm. the solution. So other companies pick it up and then they experience their own yeah. pain points. But this engineer was frustrated because he said, I'm 100% sure that Spotify, like many other companies, are having challenges around this implementation, but they're not mm. sharing that. So I said, I'm going to take it upon myself to make that a bit more visible. So what's one area that you guys would like to really improve, either amongst yourself or an area that you see a lot of your clients seeing that this is something that they would need to improve because you've seen it as an area where there are a lot of struggles? Well, I think the subject of systems, adopting systems, and then being able to adapt them is the overarching, one of the biggest challenges that we see among our clients. So we're operating in a world mm-hmm. where there's an existing paradigm of organizational structures and it involves, you know, hierarchy mm-hmm. and bosses. And we all grow up in this world pretty much, unless you were very lucky, <laughs> where just understanding that that's what it's going to be like to be in an organization that you'll, you'll have someone above you tells you what to do and you'll tell people below you what to do, you know, broadly generalized. And so a big challenge for organizational design and designers is, is offering up different models and, and actually acclimating people to and sort of getting them through the trauma and the, the ingrained um, ideas from this paradigm that we all, that we all came up in. And so, if, you know, and, and of course, organizations want a roadmap for getting that goalpost of having a new, better way of organizing. And that's where people look to like the Spotify model or, for example, Holacracy as like a plug and play situation. But we have seen in our clients that plug and play is a moot concept when it comes to organizational design. You can learn a lot from um, what others are doing. You can decide you're going to you know, start with Holacracy and adapt from there. But that a responsive organization, one that's um, democratic or teal, no bosses, there are lots of different words for it. Uh, it requires people to be empowered and to feel safe in shaping their own ways of working mm. and communicating about yeah. that. So 
So inherently, you, you have to be creating a culture where people can experiment with one way of doing things and then say, you know what, that's not working. Let's, tr- let's try something else. So you've, you've got to be able to evolve whatever you start with in order to be successful. One of our clients tried to implement Holacracy. This is a, a beautiful client, really um, community focused, um, producing healthy food and employing people who um, would struggle to get a job elsewhere. A lot of good intentions and passion. And the Holacracy model just um, unfortunately dragged them down. It just wasn't meeting their needs and they didn't have the capacity mm. to innovate. And then we see other clients that have taken that approach of learning from different examples and creating everything from scratch and making sure that people understand that they are empowered to make decisions, to take risks, to figure this out together. And that it's a whole different story. That That's where you see the real success stories. Plug and play doesn't work. That's what's yeah. in my mind right now, or at least it doesn't work for everyone. I give the analogy of a pair of denim jeans might suit you, but they might not suit me. So I'll find something else. And I think maybe, yeah, maybe we should adopt more of a, a customized approach when it comes to these tools. Something that's really interesting is because you made the reference of the old and the new world. I've been talking to a bunch of HR, people who work in HR and the topic of, or at least I'll just put the kind of put the scenario in front of you. The conversation I had over dinner with a HR specialist, which was, It's great that we want to adopt a really flat structure where people want more autonomy, but people still want to be motivated to get certain job titles and certain job roles. How would you merge those two things together? Because in a way, it looks like on the surface, there's a conflict. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think to make a flat structure work in the end, people will have to let go of some of that desire for status, but not completely. And I I think the challenge here is that we tend to associate success with status in terms of pay or title, because that is what the existing paradigm gives us as an option. That's how you achieve status. And that there need to be other models of status or, or merit that are inherent in that flat structure. So one thing that I've seen is... An organization, you may have no bosses, no one has the power to tell anyone else what to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the organization is providing equal value. In in all organizations, people have a sense of how their value relates to the organization as a whole. And sometimes it's very frustrating when you see that someone else who you think is not providing the value you are is getting paid more. So in an example of a company that's that's doing this really well, um, Morningstar, on their famous example of of a teal organization. It's a tomato processor located in California. And Mm -hmm. what they have done, so they have no bosses. They also have people define their own salaries, which sounds crazy, but they have a really cool system for doing it. So everyone has the authority to set their own salary, but you have the responsibility to consult with other people in the organization about what you should be paid. And they're going to let you know, you also have full knowledge of what everyone else is being paid. And these people are going to let you know if they think what you're wanting to get paid is appropriate or not. And so if you have everyone coming back to you and saying you're trying to pay yourself way too much and you go through with it anyway, you're going to be subject to a lot of social pressure that will, that will play out in other ways. I mean, everyone, everyone will know that you're essentially taking advantage of that system. There's a kind of social mm-hmm. pressure that allows for, with the, with the use of transparency, and obviously 
you need a lot of good communication skills. Like those kinds of conversations can't happen <laughs> in uh, most organizations today without a lot of preparation. Foundation. But, Absolutely. but it works beautifully at Morningstar because they've laid the foundation for that. In those conversations, people naturally establish what their value is. And the people that are feeling ambitious and really want to make themselves more valuable have to do it in a way that's, that's mindful of everyone else and the, the organization's goals as a whole. And it also, to add to that, you want to understand this organization, Morningstar, is not going to go ahead and hire employees or people who don't see or have the same values in common as the organization. So the company asks for people to be able to function autonomously. So they have to incorporate that belief in their recruiting and hiring practices to make sure that whoever comes on board is able to abide by this new constitution that the company has that is very different than everyone else's in order to be able to do well and progress in their role and, and, you know, whatever ambitions they have while they are at the company. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a good fit. So companies, in order to make that work, they need to be mindful of what type of people can they hire that would fit well within the culture that they've created. Mm. That reminds me that, I mean, creating a company or having a company with this kind of radical democratic structure, it's a very different thing to start one from scratch with a small group of people who are committed to this ideal and, and to building it out and can, and can identify and hire, bring on others who are committed to that versus trying to convert an existing company, mm-hmm. especially a large one to that. You know, we can see this in, in the startup world where you know, it's much easier to have radical, innovative technology come out of a, of a startup that's unhindered by a history and bureaucracy than it is a big company. It's the same thing with organizational innovation, transitioning a big company um, is a lot bumpier of a process. It, it can be done, but you know, in the process, some people are going to get pissed off and some people are going to leave. There are going to be missteps. So, I think what I'm getting from what the both of you just described is as a company, you have to almost be ready and willing to have people walk away rather than trying to convert them. And I guess what I mean with that is, so the example at Morningstar, not everyone would want to work in an organization yeah. like that. And you should yeah. be okay with that. Examples of these companies are still relatively new. And we believe that as they grow in number and their, their successes become more obvious, that more and more people will want to embrace that. But certainly, yeah, these days, it's not fit for everyone. It's not totally black and white. It's not as if they're, you're, there's old paradigm and new paradigm and you're choosing A or B, um, there are gradations in between. And that gets back to the idea that every company has to customize what works best for them. Absolutely. Yeah. So on that high note, we're coming to an end. But before I let the two of you go, I'm always curious to find out what tools or books um, people are reading at the moment, and especially with the topic of either trying to make things better, faster and happier for companies. So what is it that the two of you are reading at the moment? So I am reading a fascinating book. It's actually a textbook called um, Design for Policy. So we've talked mostly about you know, working for, for private organizations. And we also, we cover private, public, and nonprofit organizations. And what I really love about this book is that it's, it's doing a deep dive into how design methods, um, organizational design and design thinking broadly can apply in the public sector for public policy. as a whole different... Mm set of challenges and this book really dives right into you know how how do the mindsets 
of the public sector in general and people who work in the public sector, how are they going to intersect with these new ways of doing mm-hmm. things oh, to bring these practices to the public sector? I mean, in the U S they, the public sector employs a significant proportion of people. So if we could, if we could this revolution in, yeah. in the public sector, could make a real improvement in, in the lives of all of those employees, but it's a heavier lift because there's more entrenched bureaucracy in the public sector. So this book, I'm getting some some inspiration, both theoretical in terms of what are the kind of theoretical challenges in doing this, and then practically what are some some successes and some approaches. That's awesome. And I love the language you use. You said starting a revolution. So I'll be yeah. keeping an eye out on you too and seeing all the stuff about what you guys are doing. What about you, Shar? Any books um, that you're reading at the moment? I think one that would be a little bit more relevant to this conversation would be Creativity Inc. I've been meaning to read that book for a few years now, and I never actually got around to it. Now I have the time to read it. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the book itself, it was written about the creators and the founders of Pixar. And it's about essentially the environment that they created to allow for creativity to flourish and shine. So this is a great book to get inspiration for organizations that are looking to bring more innovation or empower their employees to be more involved and feel safe and secure in their workplaces to tap into their potential and and feel safe and trust that whatever they share will be taken in and listened to and potentially actively put into practice without fearing any sort of backlash or no, this is a terrible idea or anything. I love that. Absolutely love that. that's super. It's a, it's a great book. I highly recommend it. As we speak right now, the two books that you both have mentioned on my Amazon shopping list, and I'll be purchasing them. I just One thing I just want to say, Shar, what you just described is so linked to psychological safety, the idea of being able to propose something without feeling mm-hmm. fear of rejection and accepting that it can happen, but you're not afraid of it and that nothing bad happens if and when you do get rejected. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool.